0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
2: Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper.
1: Turn up the bun with crunch Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with the author and historian Alexander Larman. His latest book, released just a few days ago, is The Crown in Crisis, which explores the dramatic 1936 abdication of King Edward VIII. To discuss these events and some fascinating new revelations that emerged from his research, Alexander was joined in conversation by the popular historian Dan Jones.
2: Well, hello, BBC History podcast listeners, uh, and thank you for joining us today. This is a slightly um, special, I say special, different edition of the podcast um, because I'm hosting it, but it's my great pleasure to have uh, the real talent in the building, which is Alexander Lama, who is the author of The Crown in Crisis, I think your fourth book Uh, In the past, Alex has written about uh, Lord Rochester, the bawdy libertine and poet. He's written a wonderful book about uh, the year 1666. He's written another wonderful book about Byron's women. And now we're on to the 20th century, 1936, uh, the crowning crisis, the abdication crisis, great crisis in that, the House of Windsor. It's a blow-by-blow account of the abdication crisis, but it draws on new sources, rare interviews, uh, archival material, all the great stuff that's there at the coalface of doing history. This is what Alex is, is doing. It's, he describes the abdication crisis as the gravest threat to the monarchy since the execution of Charles I, which gives you a sense of the high drama, the high stakes of the piece. The book's been billed as the definitive work on the abdication crisis. It's come out to rave reviews, so it's my great pleasure to have Alexander Lyman here today.
3: Thank you very much, Dan. Let's
2: start with this wonderfully hyperbolic claim that the abdication crisis of 1936 was the gravest threat to the monarchy since 1649. I mean, that's a big claim. Why do you, why do you make that claim?
3: It's a big claim. And of course, there are many other times during history between the Civil War and the abdication crisis, but you might have seen a similar situation. What happened in 1936 in December was a sense that the monarchy might cease to exist altogether. Never before in English history had there been a time that the monarch had decided voluntarily to abdicate their throne, and I don't think ever before in history had there been a monarch so unsuited to the role as Edward VIII, because there had certainly been weak monarchs and powerless monarchs before, but there had never been one who was content to, to give up his throne because of a woman. Mm.
2: Talk to me a little bit about the context of the times. Um, What was Britain like in 1936?
3: Britain in 1936 was a deeply divided country. It was a country where the divisions between rich and poor, fascist and communist, left and right, young and old, were as pronounced as they have ever been, we like to think of ourselves now in 2020 as being a country torn apart. But if you go back 80-odd years, you've got a similar range of divisions. And in a lot of regards, it was the figure of the king and the, royal family, the figures of the royal family, who were the glue keeping it all together. So it was seen as almost unfathomable that the monarch would voluntarily give up his throne.
2: How powerful or not powerful was the monarch? I mean, how what, what did it actually mean to be a king or queen, indeed? Uh, although specifically a, a king in this context, in 1936. I mean, was there any merit to or, or function to it beyond the ceremonial? Wallace Simpson
3: made the very elementary mistake of believing that the king had the similar power to the American president. Unfortunately, so did Edward VIII. He believed that he was going to be able to take over the country and more or less run it on the lines he wanted to. He was called the most modernistic man alive by one of his admirers. And what's very interesting is that he even wanted to take over the BBC itself. He, at a dinner party one day, he said, with robust good humour, that he would fix the question of the BBC's in- independence, and that would be the last thing he did before he went.
2: Was this just delusion, or did he have any grounds for believing that the monarchy either possessed or could regain this sort of power?
3: Well, something that I found out about Edward VIII was that one of his private secretaries, Lord Wickram, believed that he was actually mentally ill and put procedures in place that he could be certified if needs be. It was thought they might even have had a second George referred on their hands. So, although posterity hasn't generally agreed with Wigram, there was a sense that, I suppose, if you look at it now, we'd probably give him some sort of delusion, narcissistic personality disorder or something like that, because he had these insane delusions of grandeur. Okay, he was King Emperor, which is a bit better than most of us (laughs) are going to get, but there's absolutely no sense with him that he was ever subscribing to the real world there was a constant sense of edward both before during and after his relation there was no after with his relationship with wallace but after his abdication that edward would only do what he wanted and this level of absolute selfishness and absolute pig-headedness was what did for him in the end
2: now princes of wales or he- heirs to the throne um have in the past been accused of many of the same personality traits uh, and have indeed almost objectively, we can say, possessed the personality traits you're describing. Um, and it has been often tweaked beforehand. I mean, I'm going to go back into my own uh, field of, of specialty, which is the Middle Ages, and think about Edward II well, when he was Edward of Carnarvon and, and Edward First's eldest son, it was very clear that this was bad news coming down the track as soon as he was going to become king. Was there some of the same sense with Edward VIII in the 1930s or all before this? Well,
3: there was a conversation between Stanley Baldwin, who was then Prime Minister, and Alan Tommy Lascelles, who was one of the king's courtiers, when Lascelles openly said, I hope that he falls off a horse and breaks his neck. And Baltham says, God help me, I feel the same. Because he was seen as so unreliable and so dangerous, partly because of his Nazi sympathies, but also because he was a playboy. He was a playboy who was, shall we say, into rather recherche sexual practices, which would have opened him up to blackmail if he'd been indiscreet about who he'd committed these sexual practices with.
2: But even in in living memory in 1936, there was, uh, you know, a playboy prince of uh, voracious... Um, material and sexual appetites. Right, you know. Well, you've made
3: a comparison of Edward the Second, and let's just say that uh, they had more than one thing in common in that regard.
2: Right. <laughs> um, but uh, my, my, the central point I'm driving at is that uh, even if we go back to the end of the 19th century, um, there'd been examples of. Uh, of. Prince
3: of Wales, who didn't look like a sure bet. What was different about Edward VIII? He was worse. I mean, I suppose the the, the only thing you can say about Edward VIII was that he had a younger brother, Bertie, who later became George VI, who his father, George V, openly preferred... George V didn't dote on anyone, but he was much more warmly disposed towards his younger son because he was seen as dutiful, he was seen as a steady pair of hands, he was seen as somebody who would get the job done. And George V actually added his voice when he said, I hope that nothing comes between Bertie and Lilibet. <laughs> and you think to yourself... And actually, it's strange because people have asked me, did you feel sorry for Edward VIII while they were writing the book? And... I didn't until I went to Windsor Castle, and I had this extraordinary moment where I was in the Royal Archives, which is in the keep of Windsor Castle, and I was reading all of the letters that were written to Edward on the day of his abdication, and it became one of the most emotionally overwhelming things I've ever ever done. These dozens of letters, these people were pouring out their hearts to Edward, and I include a very small selection in the book.
2: These are ordinary people.
3: No, it's a mixture of people. It's pe- it was people like Diana and Duff Cooper. It was a former mistress of his. It was pe- nemeses of his. Some of them, obviously, are just writing to him in a kind of formal, quite a we-shall-miss-you way. Yes. Others, there's absolute desperation. There was an old nanny of his called Lalla Bill, who he'd had a very close relationship with when he was younger. And she wrote this heartbreakingly sad letter to him about how much she was going to miss him. Mm. Because, of course, Edward went into exile, and nobody called it that, but nobody needed to. Mm. And the idea now, I mean, obviously we can see contemporary parallels with princes going into exile, but in the 1936, exile was not something you could come back from. You couldn't pop in and out of Britain. When Edward sailed into the darkness, as Cosmo Lang put it, that was it.
2: So I suppose this this then drives at this... The, the, the significant differences in um, attitudes between what we see today with regards to the royal family and and, and in the 1930s, that there was still in the 30s uh, vestiges of um, uh, more something more than deference towards the royal family, that this was a, a kind of semi-sacred institution and that these people were genuinely different and important for that, for that reason. Well,
3: one reason often given for the abdication was that it was the ecclesiastical reasons that it was impossible for the king to marry a twice-divorced woman, have her as his queen, and remain king. And I think that's, on the one hand, that's technically true. But if you look at the sheer political shenanigans of it all, in fact, you can see that there was a desperation in the highest circles to get rid of Edward and get his brother to become king. But if you can, if you can compare that with the attitudes of people who genuinely loved him, I mean, there's so many so many anecdotes about him seeing ordinary people going to houses. I mean, in November 1936, for instance, he went to Wales and he went to see all the depressed coal mining areas, and he famously said something must be done about this, and that was misinterpreted as Edward trying to actually start a political movement, because obviously. It's that it was even said during Stanley Borton's Address to the Commons when the abdication bill was being passed, he quoted from Hamlet and said his words are not his own. So when the king, as indeed any member of the royal family would say today, something that was actually newsworthy and appeared to be offering a political idea, it caused chaos and
2: confusion. OK, before we dig into the you know, the, the detail and the chronology of, of the abdication year, if you yeah. like, um, tell me about the other in a sense, major player in this. Tell me about Mrs. Simpson, Wallace Simpson. Who was Wallace Simpson? Where did she come from? To whom had she been married? Uh, What was she all about? And how did she exert this this extraordinary control uh, over Edward VIII?
3: Wallace Simpson is one of the most fascinating women in 20th century history because she came from a... I suppose that you'd call it... Unmonied but upper middle class family in, in America and she married relatively young to an air pilot who proved to be a wife beater and a drunk so after she divorced him although not before a rather eventful trip to China where she learned the arts of pleasuring men shall we say she she moved to England where she married a shipping broker called Ernest Simpson and Simpson proved to be a dull but amiable figure And early in the 1930s, she was introduced to the Prince of Wales, Edward. And initially, there was no great spark between the two of them. But she became part of his social orbit by the beginning of 1934. He was as obsessed by her as it would be possible for a human being to be with another one. And... Well, there's two two ways of looking at this. The first way of looking at this is that he was a deeply lonely man who for the first time in his life had actually met somebody who took him for what he was rather than being something else. That's the romantic way of looking at it. And when you say
2: something that... what he was rather than something else, do you mean uh, the person rather than the prospective crown? Absolutely. But
3: she wrote in her biography that she had been the first to penetrate his inner loneliness. But without wishing to be crude, I think she penetrated something else entirely... And I think that what it was for Edward was that he was a masochist of the highest, indeed most, submissive nature. And a lot of the contemporary accounts of their behaviour together suggested that she took a dominant role far, far beyond what you would have expected, and that he, the King of England, was only too happy to appear pathetic and submissive in front of her. And I think it's quite interesting to see this exceptionally... Modern relationship. I mean, we hear a lot about BDSM relationships now, but you look back at that, I mean, the idea of the King of England being submissive, and of course, there's always a feature of BDSM relationships that the submissive partner is encouraged to give something up to prove their adoration to their Dom. So, why not, if you'd be King of England, be able to do the most submissive thing of all and give up your throne? your mistress
2: i mean that is that's quite an explosive um psychosexual explanation for a, a major part a, a point in 20th century history i mean are, are we purely talking about the sexual aspects of their relationship or is it is it as it sounds like broader than that that this is this is a sort of all-consuming um relationship in which he is willingly uh putting himself in in a submissive position with a dominant partner
3: well, what I kept seeing over and over again in accounts of the crisis was how it would seem to be in a trance. Over and over again, it's that specific phrase people used. He was in a trance-like state, in a dream-like state. And he was keep on saying, things like, She is the most wonderful woman in the world. Nothing else exists except for her. And you start to think to yourself... What had she done to him? How had she bewitched him? What was her hold over him? Because he showered her with the most extraordinary amounts of money. I mean, even before he became king, he was giving her gifts that were worth well over £100,000 a year, which was so, so many times the average income is to be absolutely fantastical. But you have to ask, what was she like? And if you see the letters that she was writing to her aunt, and to, indeed her letters that she wrote to Ernest Simpson after their divorce you do see a different side of her to the femme fatale of legend. You see a much more human figure and a much more frightened figure. One thing I wanted to bring out in the book was that she wasn't this ogre who people have often described her as. Yes, she was somebody who enjoyed the finer things in life, and yes, she certainly had an eye on security. But I think to her credit, when she saw the game was up, she tried desperately to to stop Edward leaving the throne she really did try to stop the abdication and he wouldn't and because of that i think that she was stuck with him forever and i don't believe that the long marriage afterwards was a testament to how deeply in love they were because the pictures that you see of them especially later in life but look like at her vampires emerging into the sunlight
2: for the first time now you used um as, as well as, uh the vampire reference you just made, you also used a word that I found quite interesting describing her, which was bewitched. Um, and I want to ask you a bit more about this because in common with, let's take another famous example of uh, a royal lover who uh, shook the English institution of monarchy then to its foundations, Anne Boleyn with Henry VIII, um, history has been, I think most people would say at this point, unkind towards Anne Boleyn in the same ways that Tudor society was unkind towards Anne Boleyn in that she has been accused of, even, even if sort of embedded in uh, elusive language, bewitching the king, uh, entrancing the king. I mean, do you think that there is an element of just deep-rooted misogyny um, with regards to the way that people have thought about Wallace Simpson in the same way that, you know, Tudor historians are now... Um, Concluding has, has been part of the treatment of Anne Boleyn?
3: Well, I'd say if you go back even further to Piers Gaveston, there's always been a treatment of royal mistresses or royal playthings that's always been unfair. There's never once been an example in history where you can look at a famous royal mistress or royal concubine and say, oh, they were treated well, their reputation has been enhanced by posterity. And it's interesting with Wallace because this time that she spent in China, there's been a lot of discussion about the so called Shanghai dossier which was said to have been something where she essentially went to the sing-sing houses, which would be our market brothels, and learnt various arts. And of course, the sexual arts are one thing. But what they're more interested in in these sing-sing houses was actually teaching women to get men to become obsessed by them. Because obviously, the nature of how these things worked in Shanghai and in these other Chinese cities was that you would have Westerners, especially, who would become completely enraptured by the courtesans. And they would do anything for them. And the court of would deny them release until they showed themselves worthy. So I think actually, if you look at it in those terms, Wallace actually picking up a very different psychological art rather than what we think of as the mainstream of British society. Because of course her being American is a very important distinction. She was not coming from a background that could be dealt with. And a lot of the contempt directed towards her by the establishment was an anti-American. And, of course, as we see with Meghan Markle today, we can see that there is a fear of of the unknown. There is a fear of what can't be described in straightforward terms.
2: Okay, so Edward and Wallace have uh, met in the mid-1930s. Shortly 1934? 31. 31. Um, At what point do they become lovers? 34. 34. Start off. (laughs) And then at the start of 1936, Edward becomes... King. Why is there not an immediate crisis? It takes a year for this crisis to unfold, which you brilliantly unpacked in the book, and in fact gives you a wonderful tapestry to to work with as a historian. But why is this not a crisis at the point of accession?
3: Wallace was still married. As long as Wallace remained married, there could be no constitutional crisis because she would never be any more than a mistress. But when she divorced her husband, Ernest, in October, thereby bringing about the possibility that the king could marry her. That was what set the constitutional crisis in train. Of course, the other thing to remember, and I find this absolutely extraordinary, is that Wallace was kept out of the papers in, it, in England throughout 1936, right up until December. Lord Beaverbrook, who was a proprietor of the Daily Express and the Evening Standard, ensured that none of his papers printed anything whatsoever, and even papers such as the Times, which were more hostile towards Edward and towards Wallace, followed suit. So you have to imagine that there's this omerta that the papers had. So nothing was mentioned, and the possibility of public feeling was largely not an issue until the very end.
2: Why why was there this culture? Is this just part of the institutional deference of British society at the time? Or are these people friends and they just don't want to stitch each other up? What's What's happening? Well, it's interesting with Lord Beaverbrook, because he's a figure who...
3: When I interviewed Philip Ziegler, who was said to be official biographer, Ziegler described Beaverbrook as actually evil. And he said he's one of the very few people I'd use that word of. And I, I went to Beaverbrook's papers, which were contained in the Parliamentary Archives, and they used for the basis of an autobiographical book he wrote about the abdication. But the original unedited papers are much harsher, much crueler. and They're really worth a read, actually. But what you get a sense of Beaverbrook was a man he couldn't have cared less about Edward. He had, he had no interest in who the king was. He saw the king as ultimately a transitory figure whose actual power and reputation was a long way behind his own. What Beaverbrook was ultimately interested in was influence. And if he could manipulate the king into being a, an object of that influence, so much better.
2: Talk to me about the summer of 1936. There's a great passage in the book um, in which we have... And no not yet divorced Wallace Simpson aboard a yacht with the king and another uh, adulterous couple sailing round um, the islands of Dalmatia in Croatia, uh, having a sort of wonderful time and also a sort of not very wonderful time at all and it 's the most um, sort of extraordinary almost uh, comical um, uh, episode and, and one of the standout episodes in the book. And so I wonder if you can use that maybe to give us a snapshot of what life was like before the abdication crisis starts in the autumn of 1936, where, where you have, uh, within the private realm at least, a very odd royal setup and uh, probably a sense that there is a, a great crisis kind of thundering down uh, down the road. Well,
3: the cruise on the Allen in August 1936... It came about after various unfortunate incidents, including the assassination attempt in July. And Edward, I think, felt possibly entirely just that he deserved a holiday. So he started this boat and off he went with a group of friends and Wallace. It went wrong quite quickly because it was expected that any English king who would be travelling around Europe would have to be performing diplomatic functions as well as enjoying himself. So there can't be that many romantic mini-breaks which are accessorised by the need to meet various presidents and various kings and also being accompanied by destroyers on your way. So that was very much the tension there, the tension between the personal and the universal, as it was throughout Edward's reign. But we have these wonderful letters that Diana Cooper, who was a guest on the cruise with her husband Duff, wrote to her friend Conrad Russell and they give a really vivid insight as to what life was like on an everyday basis Because through Diana Cooper's writing, you can see a sense of Edward being this almost pathetic figure who was wearing little shorts and little shirts and generally behaving in the most unregal fashion imaginable.
2: I mean, that sounds like me when I'm on my holiday, but not not fit for a king of England. But you're not actually king yet.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We have to remember this small detail. (laughs) It's coming. It's coming.
2: No one wants the job. I'll I'll be up for it. Um, but, But... so we have this sort of slightly odd holiday around uh sort of around the you know the Mediterranean and Greater Mediterranean. Um and is any was any of this reported or is this this is this known to history now from diaries
3: and uh, and, and private letters? It was reported extensively everywhere apart from Britain. In America, it became a massive deal straight away because when you are going around, there are 10,000 Croatians standing chanting hurrah for the lovers. It's remarkably difficult to keep this stuff out of the public domain. But, but the, the strange thing is, and this I think shows you what the world was like in 1936. While this was you know, box office news in America, and indeed in other parts of Europe, in Britain it simply didn't go anywhere. Every single picture that was printed of Edward on the cruise, well, this was cropped out of it. what seems extraordinary to us now in this era of social media, in this era of blogs, in this era where there's no possibility of controlling the spread of news, is that there were, I don't know how many papers with a decent reach there were in 1936, but every single one of them obeyed this command, which was essentially dictated by Beaverbrook, who took his orders from the palace. And it's an extraordinary idea that you could not publish the biggest story of the day And in fact, everything that was published, if you look at papers from 1936, it's exceptionally bland. The king enjoyed his holiday.
2: You mentioned, uh, when I I, I skipped ahead to this rather odd trip around, uh, trip on the boat, um, an assassination attempt. And uh, I've read about that not only in your book, but actually in in a lot of the newspapers this week. Uh, This is is obviously big news, uh, full stop. Um, not just in 1936, but now. Um, There seems to have been, and and you've uncovered some new evidence about this, an attempt to kill Edward VIII uh, while he was out and about in London. That's absolutely astonishing, isn't it?
3: What's very interesting is that I had known while I started to research the book that there'd been this incident on July 16th, 1936, when a man called George McMahon was said to have thrown a gun in front of Edward's horse while he was out inspecting the Royal Household Cavalry. Are you supposed to throw guns? Are you supposed to fire them? Yeah. But what was really odd, I I thought, was that every single biographical account presented this as a kind of non-event. And I thought, but hang on. And then a few years ago, there were some MI5 files released which appeared to partially corroborate these claims when McMahon had made at his trial, namely that he was an MI5 informant Would be the agent of a foreign power. But even so, the MI5 files were sceptical. They seemed to suggest that McMahon was a very small-time figure. What I found in Baylor College archives was this document called He Was My King, which McMahon wrote in 1938 in an attempt to clear his name. And this essentially was a long 40-page autobiographical document in which McMahon described how he was recruited by the Italian embassy and used as a double agent, while being paid simultaneously by them, by MI5. And eventually, he was offered £150 to kill the king.
2: By the Italian well, embassy? He claimed it
3: was the Italian embassy, but I think it was much more likely it have been a ragtag band of disaffected communists and sympathisers operating outside of the Italian embassy, because I can't see any reason why Mussolini, or indeed the Italian ambassador, would have wanted Edward dead,
2: no, I mean one of the more pro-fascist members of the British Royal House is probably the last one you want to do away. I thought it so it's
3: more likely that it was people attached to be at the Italian Embassy, and McMahon was a heavy drinker and a fantasist. So you've got this document which you have to take with enormous caution as being any kind of accurate account of what was going on. And yet what was very interesting was he, he has a lot of dates in it and there's this fascinating material where he describes his continued attempts to tell I 5 this is a planned assassination attempt, and they keep ignoring him. But the dates they have of meetings with him in their records perfectly corroborate with his. So all of a sudden you start to see the idea that this man was actually being set up to try and kill Edward for whatever reason, by whichever parties were involved.
2: So let me get this straight. We have what looks like um, a slightly uh, ragtag, amateurish, non-official, but maybe official, uh, affiliated um, plot to kill the king of England, of which there are probably lots every year. Most of them come, come to absolutely nothing. But... This one has been reported by its chief agent to MI5, who sort of said, uh, well, I think we'll look the other way. I mean, are you, are you implying that there were possibly elements within MI5 in 1936 who thought, if this useless king of England uh, were to be shot by a nutter, um, well, maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing. I mean, that, that's quite an explosive claim.
3: It's even more explosive, if you think, that he was a paid MI5 informant. And there's all all of these records where MI5 are actually saying some of the information we've had from him has been undoubtedly accurate. So the idea of what this would have led to if any of it had made it into the public domain seems absolutely explosive. Do I think that MI5 was sitting back and letting it happen? On balance, not. What I think that was more likely was it was was a cock-up of absolutely horrendous proportions. They... blew themselves wide open with all of this. And so what you see after that, it takes up an entire chapter in the book because it's such fascinating material. First half of the chapter essentially involves the run-up to the assassination attempt. The second half is all about the cover-up. And the cover-up had all sorts of strange ideas, namely that during McMahon's trial, he wasn't allowed properly to give his own evidence. It was all reported as if it was the German embassy rather than the Italian embassy he was acting on behalf of, which is obviously such an absurd claim, it could be dismissed. He was prosecuted by the Attorney General, but of the three counts he was up for trial on, two of them, which were actually treasonous charges, were dropped during the trial, and the only one remaining was a charge of holding a gun in the King's presence, and it was a relatively minor charge, and he was given 12 months hard labour for it. But over and over again, I kept thinking, this does not add up. This is a story of a conspiracy and a cover-up.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: I must say, without sounding too uh, over the top about it, when you write about the abdication of VIII, it is like writing about Christ on the cross or something like that. Every single detail is extraordinary.
4: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's history historyextra
2: Okay, so let's. We've had this extraordinary summer. Possible assassination, well, an assassination attempt mm-hmm. on the king. Possible cover up by MI five. Uh, a strange holiday around the uh, the, uh, the islands of Croatia, which is not reported in the press. Take us into the autumn of nineteen thirty six. Wallace Simpson's divorce is about to be finalised. At what point and by whom um, is this crisis? recognised as, in some senses, existential for the British monarchy?
3: Well, what happened was, first of all, Wallis Simpson's divorce in October 1936 brought about the idea that she could remarry. It was a divorce that was conducted under collusion and indeed perjury on her part. So there was a possibility that it was actually an illegal divorce. What
2: what do you mean? Spell it out.
3: Essentially, she gave a huge amount of false evidence while she was doing the, the divorce case in Ipswich. One of the things being that Ernest Simpson, who was the petitioner, offered no defence whatsoever. And the judge, who clearly hadn't been... there was a, The idea of the judge should have been fixed, so it was all OK. The judge hadn't been fixed enough. So the judge was absolutely astonished as to why this should be going on in his courtroom. And the other thing is, is what was not said in court, but was pretty obvious, was that Wallace Simpson herself was an adulteress had been committing adultery with the King of England. That to have been said in open court would have been absolutely scandalous and absolutely devastating. But on the other hand, from any legal perspective, she had been in situations with him which were obvious evidence of adultery taking place. So you see all that as being the start of a serious trouble. But the next incident of serious trouble came about because of a man called Bishop Blunt, who preached a sermon at the beginning of December, which may or may not have been intended to be a reference to what Edward was doing, but there were sufficiently coded messages in it for the press at the time to have got very excited and think, right, now we can actually bring it out into the open. And so the papers, which had have this story for months, been unable to do anything with it, could jump on it. And all of a sudden, it was every front page every single paper, and everyone in the country had an opinion.
2: What did Blunt say? I mean, uh, not necessarily word for word, but what was it about this sermon? Uh, what, what was he touching
3: on? Blunt was essentially touching on the absence of spiritual faith in the country at large, and he talked about the king as being this figure, and he made reference to the king in his trials and problems might want to have some spiritual faith. And this reference to the trials and problems, or whatever precise wording was, essentially the paper stood as, right, okay, somebody's now referred to it, in camera, as it were, or out of camera, whatever phrases, and um, yeah, that was the beginning.
2: From Edward's perspective now, uh, and Wallace's perspective now that she was divorced, um, they were determined to be married. He was determined to be married. She was determined to be married. But how how did this play out?
3: Well, there was a curiosity that her, her divorce was granted, but it didn't become legal for six months, and he was supposed to be to be crowned king in May in 1937 and he wants her to be his queen for coronation. But obviously there was no way that the British establishment were going to allow a now twice-divorced woman to be crowned queen.
2: So was this... Now, you touched on this a little bit earlier on. The way that... This was always presented when I was a, a child and, and learning about it in school was a simple, there was a simple moral case not far removed from that which had created the Church of England in the first place, to so wit, the king, as head of the Church of England, could not marry a divorced woman and that is it was a simple open and shut moral case uh, which uh, increasingly distance from uh, the events it themselves appeared to be absurd and and a relic of some um, morality of a, a deeply strange and other time was this was the was it really just as simple as that that this was considered uh, you know, morally scandalous?
3: When I started researching this book, it seemed like every single story that I thought I knew about it was completely false. And I wouldn't say this one is untrue, but that is exactly what you would expect to be told at school. It is a grotesque simplification of what happened. A much better way of looking at why the abdication happened was because the government would have fallen. And Stanley Baldwin would not have been able to remain as prime minister. His ragtag coalition government would not have been able to exist. And this was largely because the constitutional issue that existed was that the king had to do what he was told to by his ministers. And if he would not do what he was told to by his ministers, the role of ministers essentially became irrelevant. One thing that Edward became quite interested in was this thing called the King's Party, where he would have been essentially... A monarch at the head of this neo-fascist movement, which would have been bankrolled by Lord Beaverbrook, and would have had possibly Winston Churchill as its prime minister, although Churchill often said he didn't want any part of it, but figures like Oswald Mosley involved in it. And the idea that you have an elected government replaced by an unelected, unaccountable, shadow government... That, I think, was why the abdication was seen as such a major issue for people. It wasn't because of the church. I mean, the church was still a major influence people's lives in 1936. We can't take up increasingly secular modern-day society as the exemplar for how it should be regarded. And Cosmo Lang, the Archbishop of Canterbury, loathed Edwards and loathed him for his irreligiosity and because he didn't seem at all serious. But the reason why people were so frightened was the idea that you could either the monarchy itself would cease to exist. And that seems a very enormous claim. But if Edward had refused to abdicate and there had been this unelected king's party that's come forward and the government had crumbled... Britain was laying itself wide open in 1936 at this time of international instability. And who's to say what would have happened after that? Because Edward's relationship with Hitler and, Ed, and, indeed, Ribbentrop, who was the ambassador in Britain at that stage, was, you could either call it warm, you could call it close, you could certainly call it inappropriate. And so the idea that the monarchy was this fixture in British society that would never be challenged was, I think, challenged in quite a spectacular fashion.
2: So the issue then, b- putting aside the, the, um, the clerical and the, the moral issue of, of a king marrying a, a divorcee, was that if the government advised the king not to marry Mrs. Simpson, and he refused, that the government would fall. Why did the government feel that it had to advise the king not to marry Mrs. Simpson?
3: It was felt, rightly or wrongly, that the question of morality of the day was that the public wouldn't stick the idea of a king marrying a twice-divorced woman, and that's actually where you bring in the religious aspects we've talked about. But you have the idea that the Church of England was opposed to divorce, that it would not legally recognise a marriage of this nature, as, of course, it did not when he eventually did marry her in 1937. So you can see there this marriage of church and state uniting against Edward.
2: Okay, so... Um, Talk to me a little bit about um, before we get on to the, the the last section of the story, if you like, which is the the, the climax of the um, of the application itself. Tell me a little bit about your your research for this book, because in everything that you've said so far, you seem to be not least what you've just said about the, the the fundamental reasons for this happening. You seem to be immersed in the sources of this time in a really extraordinary way, in a way that uh, uh, I don't know. People you know, this has being done for the first time in many, many years. Where did you go to find out all this new information? Who did you interview? What was the process?
3: Well, as ever with research, it's one of those things that you start off with one idea, then it becomes a kind of paper chase. You go to one library and you find something that makes you want to go somewhere else. You go to one archive and that gives you an idea of going some, somewhere even deeper. And what I did was I started off in fairly conventional places, such as Bodleian Library in Oxford, National Archives in Kew, but then of course it takes you into other directions as well. And certainly when I was given access to the Royal Archives, given access to previously unseen material, I did feel a sense that tacitly I was being encouraged to tell the whole story, that being given access to this material and been allowed to reproduce it, I felt that perhaps the story of the abdication has only been partially told before. Perhaps there's been a sense that things have been left out of the public record. And it was fascinating to see the kind of things that I was coming across. I mean, for instance, I had the diary of Alec Harding, who was the private secretary of Edward VIII, and he absolutely hated Edward. And he got this very candid account that he wrote immediately after the abdication in which he talked about what a useless failure a king was. Because Harding wrote a letter to Edward during his reign, in which he essentially said, you have caused all of this embarrassment, you have led to a dire situation. If you do not give up Mrs Simpson, you will bring the country to ruin. And of course, for your private secretary to do that to you is an extraordinary act of... I mean, treason's not too strong a word, actually.
2: Were you surprised to be granted this access to... Because it's... it's I think, you know, let's explain for the listeners, it ain't easy to get into the Royal Archives at Windsor. I mean, this is a very carefully vetted um, archive in which there are lots of rules above and beyond what you'd even find in, in a library like the British Library or the National Archives. So, so were, you, were you surprised to be allowed in? I
3: was, ex- I was exceptionally surprised and exceptionally relieved as well because i finished the first draft of the book before I went to the Royal Archives... And there was some good stuff in it, and I was pleased to have found the stuff in Balliol about McMahon of the assassination attempt. But I felt there was something lacking. I felt there weren't enough voices of those in the royal family. I could have done with some letters between Edward and his mother, Queen Mary. I could have done with letters between members of the royal family. Because I felt that what I'd done well up to that point was to construct a kind of political, social history. But I felt that the royal family were, in a sense, quite opaque. But when you go to the royal archives, and obviously it's not just letters and documents from the royalty themselves. There's also letters from courtiers and so on. You get a much fuller picture of it and you can actually see the psychological and the social makeup of what's going on at the time. And it's really exciting because you, you are in these rooms not too far away from where this thing, these things would have been going on. You have this very limited access to these extraordinary documents. I felt wrong, like a child in a sweet shop I and mean, writing as fast as I possibly could because you can't take your phone or any other reproduction device in. You've got to write down everything on either paper and pen or on a laptop. And then, of course, you have to incorporate that into your book. This is an extraordinary. Book. Do
2: they, was, uh, does the book then have to be vetted by the, the royal... Absolutely.
3: Well, actually, one thing I found is because there's a huge amount of either unreleased or unpublished material in the book, getting all all the various permissions proved to be quite a stressful process. Because I was doing all that under lockdown, so obviously while normally you'd just be able to go into these places and have a chat, everything had to be done by letter and by email and so on, which was actually incredibly stressful because there was at least one permission that I had to get, but we were. A couple of days away from the book actually going to press and i haven't got it so thankfully it came through literally the 11th hour because you want for a book like this to have as much new material as possible because people have read a lot of the great books of the past you know they've read ann seber's magnificent book about wallace simpson that woman they've read philip ziegler's great biography of Edward VIII. the and in fact Philip was somebody who I talked to and he knew Edward and Wallace so he was able to offer me all of his first-hand information and it was a wonderful sense, again, quite late in the book's writing that he gave me all of these exemplary insights into what they were like and what the situation was like because if there's anyone who knew the whole story, it was him although even he, having said that, was surprised to hear about McMahon and the assassination attempt which just shows that there's always a new story to come out
2: you said earlier on in, in this discussion that there was a moment when you were working in the Royal Archives that you suddenly felt, um, am I framing this right, uh, pity, um, empathy for Edward, uh, sympathy at, at, at the least. Um, tell us a- again about that and then... And then Bring us back into the the final stage in this story of the moment of abdication, the moment when everyone realised that this is what was going to happen uh, and and it went ahead and and the course of royal history in the 20th century has changed.
3: Well, in the run-up to the abdication, there are lots of reversals. There are times that it seemed as if Edward would be allowed to prevail, that Edward could remain on the throne, that Baldwin would crumble, and either that the abdication itself would never happen or that the government would fall and that Baldwin would have to... Given his notice. And in fact, one of the big set pieces at the end of the book is when Baldwin addresses the House of Commons. And this was to get the application bill through. And there's a great, great stories about how Baldwin had lost all of his notes and had to deliver this crucial speech, absolutely extempore. And he did it magnificently well, in a way he wasn't expected to. But there's very much that dramatically, Edward was sitting at Fort Belvedere, which was his country house just outside Windsor Grove Park. And he was largely removed from reaction. action. He didn't actually have a lot to do with the abdication, short of essentially refusing to be at all accommodating to anyone. And it was left to the politicians and to the courtiers and people like that to actually do all the running. And one figure who i bring into the book, I think more than in other books about this, was Walter Monkton, who was this lawyer who was his advisor. And in fact, it was Monkton who I originally thought of writing a book about, because he's a fascinating figure and I think he hasn't really had his due, but you do start to realise that it was the abdication that was the story that needed to be told. And yes, yeah, so when you get to the final moment of the abdication itself, I mean, I must say without sounding too... <laughs> over the top about it. When you write about the abdication of Edwidge, it is like writing about Christ on the cross or something like that. Every single detail is extraordinary. It's the way there was this final dinner party for he and all of his friends, and there were nine at the table rather than 13, and more than one of them had betrayed him. And there's all these people saying in fear, he can't go, we can't let him go. And then there's this final moment of the last broadcast made to his people, and there's all these details in it, like you can hear this bang, which was caused by Edward being nervous. And it was thought that Lord John Reef of the BBC had shut the door too strongly. And I, I love the final detail, but when he finished his broadcast, he was no longer king. He stood up and put his arm on, Mon- on his shoulder and said, Walter, it is a far better thing I go to. It's so extraordinarily dramatic. And something else that I found is, in my book, I've used quite a lot of literary quotations because that's what they were all doing back then. I mean, people had this understanding of literature and the language of literature. People were forever quoting Shakespeare, both at each other and in their diaries. And I feel the whole thing was Shakespearean. I feel that we have never had, incidentally, a really good fictional treatment of the abdication, mm. which is extraordinary to me. I mean, if you look at Peter Morgan's magnificent series, The Crown, and how dramatic that makes history, and indeed how wonderful Alex Jennings and Derek Jacobi are as, as, the, as the Duke of Windsor... You think to yourself, why don't we have this treatment of the abdication, which makes it the suspenseful, exciting, thrilling thing it was, rather than this rather anodyne love story it's often represented as.
2: And yet, after it's happened, like so many things that are apparently unthinkable, um, the monarchy goes on, life goes on. I mean, uh, or or does it? I mean, how uh, how did this change and shape? Britain in the immediate aftermath? Or was there just a sense of, oh, well, you know, that's that then?
3: Well, when Edward was referred to as the most modernistic man alive by an admirer, it was an attempt to flatter him. But I think in a lot of respects, he was a modernistic man. He was the first king, and I think probably the only king, actually, who was this figure that well, we can recognise today, this figure of absolute self-determination, who believed for his own desires his own pleasure was the most important thing, and damn the consequences. If you look at the Queen, if you look at George VI, it's always been duty. It's always been the idea that you follow a prescribed code because that is the way that you have to follow protocol. And if you look at how magnificently the Queen has acted for the longest reign in history, you can see how that duty has sustained her. But at a time where it seems that Harry and Meghan are seldom off the front pages, you have to ask Harry has been accused of following his own desire as does Meghan. And then, of course, you have to ask, but did Edward VIII pave the way for all that? After all, I mean, it's not an exact comparison between Harry and Meghan and Edward and Wallace, because Harry was never going to be king. And I don't think that Meghan and Wallace is a fair comparison either. But certainly, they have been accused of, of, I would say, villainous individualism. (laughs) And I think that Edward paved the way for that. And certainly... We still talk about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor in a very specific way. We talk about them as style icons. We talk about the Nazi sympathies. We talk about all manner of things, but none of them relate to what he did as king.
2: Place the counterfactual. Then, what uh, would it have looked like in your imagination, in your your best, very well educated guess? Had. He not abdicated, had you had the situation where either with Mrs. Simpson or not with Mrs. Simpson, you he, he had Edward VIII as Britain's wartime king uh, at a time when Britain went to war with Hitler, with Mussolini, with fascism, uh, Nazism in general.
3: Well, you'd, have, you'd have had the enormously embarrassing situation that Edward would have been sympathetic towards Hitler and sympathetic towards his ideals. And even long after the Second World War, he was still saying things along the lines of he wasn't such a bad chap, really, Hitler. So while it's perfectly possible that we would have had Baldwin, then Chamberlain, then Churchill, it's also possible that we could have had Baldwin, Chamberlain, Halifax, because that way, you're talking about the idea of somebody who was far more pro-appeasement than Churchill ever was. But then I do the other have a handset against that, Churchill, who plays a major role in my book – was a friend of Edward He was often the only person who would stand up for him. And in fact, in one very fiery exchange in the House of Commons, he lost his temper and shouted at Baldwin, you won't give up till you've broken him, will you? So there's that to consider. It's, it's a difficult one because, as ever with counterfactuality, you can construct a case and then like a historical Jenga, one thing takes it out. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and do you think that... Um, do you think this fundamentally and uh, permanently changed the British monarchy? Or do you think that actually, uh, when we look back on it at the end of our lives, hopefully in in a while, (laughs) uh, not this afternoon, uh, not even next week, um, that we will say so that this is a sort of interesting kind of sidebar to British royal history, or was this a moment of, of genuine, fundamental uh, institution-shaping history in the same way as these moments we've mentioned before, Henry VIII's divorce of Catherine of Aragon, um, or the, the comparison we started out with, not, not a comparison, but a, a, a sort of point of um, point of comparison, at any rate, at Charles I's um, deposition and execution.
3: Sometimes I often think that history is rather like standing on a cliff and looking at a fog. And the fog can only clear so far, and then you start to see one thing. But then it's almost like you've got to carry on waiting for fog to clear more, before we have got any kind of insight into what's going on. And so the events of Edward VIII's reign took place you know, nearly 90 years ago, and we think now that we have a sense of what happened, a sense of what his legacy was. And I think to an extent, in terms of the physical reality of what happened, we know what the legacy was. We know what Edward's reception is these days. But I also think that after the current Queen dies, we are going to be in unknown territory. We are going to be in a situation that very few people listening to this podcast will have known the world without Queen Elizabeth II. And people are going to ask questions then about monarchy and about what monarchy means. And those questions have not been asked in decades. I mean, if you look now, the polling ratings for the royal family, extraordinarily high, extraordinarily popular, people would never constance whether Britain is a republic. And yet you go back to Edith 8 again, an extraordinarily popular figure, somebody who was beloved by his public, even as those of the highest echelons of society were frightened of him and loathed him in equal measure. And there you see to yourself that he was this utterly vapid, utterly insubstantial figure who, because he was representative of monarchy, had a gravitas thrust upon him he barely deserved. And I think to myself that what we can see there is a sense that he was the last bad monarch that we had. And if we have another bad monarch in the future, whoever that proves to be, because bear in mind that the public adored him as Prince of Wales before he was going to be the most wonderful king. I've even seen people say, "Ah, oh, he would have been the best king of this country ever had." And you think to yourself, "He wouldn't." But on the other hand, you've still got this loyalty. You've still got people who will defend him. And I'm very much looking forward to having conversations with some of Edward VIII's stands out there because that's <laughs> going to get quite quite feisty. I think.
2: Well, on that note. Uh... Alexander Alama, I think uh, we will wrap up this podcast. It's absolutely fascinating to hear about these insights into one of, as you described it, uh, the greatest and most Shakespearean dramas in, in British royal history. Uh, you've told this story with absolute aplomb, um, wearing all of this new learning with uh, with, with great lightness of touch and uh, and um, elegance of phrasing in your new book, *The in Crisis*, which I think when uh, when everyone out there is listening to this podcast will be in all good bookshops and uh, waiting for you to pick it up. I highly recommend it. It's it's a wonderful story, very well told, uh, full of new information. Um, thank you very much for being on this podcast today.
3: Thank you for having me, Dan.
0: That was Alexander Larman in conversation with Dan Jones. The Crown in Crisis, Countdown to the Abdication is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Meanwhile, Dan's latest book is The World of Flame, The Long War 1914-1945, to which is written in collaboration with the historical image colouriser Marina Amaral. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Baitley.